Father, we come before you today hoping to hear your voice. I believe your Holy Spirit is the one who opens up hearts and minds to receive your word. Father, so have mercy on us today. Holy Spirit, we invite you to open up our hearts to enable us to respond obediently to each and everything you would say to us. Lord Jesus, we invite you to be glorified today. I love the passage of where you open up the minds of your disciples on the road to Emmaus and you show them how all the prophets and the law was fulfilled in you. And I pray for the same to take place today because we believe that we are saved only by your Son only by you, Lord Jesus. So have your way. Speak to us. May we have soft hearts and open minds. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Yes, we will be in 1 Samuel 14 as Vince just read for us. But maybe it's because I've been singing song of songs too long. We need to remember that the Bible is about Jesus. Consider this about the time of Jesus. I'm sure you will find it very hard to relate. He lived in a time where the government over him was entirely pagan. The rulers were more often than not power-hungry. Greedy, corrupted, if not easily corruptible. In fact, Jesus lived in a conquered nation as a conquered citizen, an Israelite conquered by Rome. And as we just read today in Matthew 23 together, that was the church, those were the church leaders of Jesus' day. <laughs> they didn't offer much of a counterculture to the world. Jesus was just a rural rabbi. He wasn't any particularly high-ranking church authority in his day. I should say he wasn't recognized by his church as a high-ranking authority, but of course history and the Bible proves him to be the highest-ranking church authority, if you will, indeed God. Yet Jesus' church was corrupt, and Jesus was a rogue rabbi in his church. And ultimately, the authorities of his church would be in large part to blame for his execution. Now, we might ask ourselves if we asked it in the purely human sense, that is, considering Jesus solely for, for a moment from the human side of things, how did the church in Jesus' day produce such an opposite, contrary force to be reckoned with? How do the corrupt, greedy, power-hungry, hypocritical leaders of the Jewish establishment end up with one of their own sons being Jesus, who was genuine, transparent, pure, loving, humble, selfless, and serving? I mean, church councils of old have it right when they say that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And if he is fully man... We know that he had to be somewhat enveloped into the Judaism of his day. And so perhaps it's an unvoiced miracle to say that he made it out unscathed. 
as part of the righteous remnant. He remained sinless and pure. And he practiced and he taught what a true relationship with God looked like. King Saul, as Dean reminded us last week, was what Israel wanted. They defined in their demand for a king, what they defined in their demand for a king was a king to judge us as the same as all the other nations have. And they wanted a king, quote, because then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. Now, amazing, and I point out some of this in the study guides, are the pains that God took to make the king Saul the best king possible that would be both what Israel wanted and ordained by God. See, we are told that God told Samuel, the prophet, to anoint Saul. We're told that God changed Saul's heart. Saul even prophesied on behalf of God. Saul went to war and was successful, and the nation received him as king, 1 Samuel 11. But throughout the chapters that chronicle Saul's rise as king were also foreboding foreshadows that begin to rear its ugly head last week as Dean preached for us. See, in 1 Samuel 13, we found the general consensus was this, defeat. This is what King Saul felt. King Saul and the Israelites, they were at it with their old enemies, the Philistines. The Philistines had humiliated them earlier in the book. 1 Samuel 4, this was even before Saul was king. The Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant. This was the visual representation of God. And when your enemies are able to literally take your God from you, that was humiliating, to say the least. And these peoples, Israelites and the Philistines, have a history. And it's going to culminate here in a few chapters about a little guy named David and a big guy named Goliath. But as Dean showed us last week, summed up well in 1 Samuel 13, 5-7, it says, The Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, reminds me of potatoes, <laughs> east of Beth Avon. <laughs> I have to throw that in there, sorry. <laughs> the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops, <laughs> now I'm going to think about mashed potatoes every time. <laughs> the men of Israel, verse 6, saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves, in thickets, among rocks, and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. And we remember the big point from Dean's sermon is that Saul decides for himself to do a sacrifice to God for his blessing over the war. Now, this was an act of disobedience because Saul did it out of fear and he did it out of protocol, if you will. It was a simple thing. Let the priest, let Samuel do the sacrifice. Saul did it out of fear. Well, let's get God's blessings on this and let's get this over with. 
things looked grimmer at the end of chapter 13. You can see there for yourself. But perhaps the biggest thing to take note of, 1322, is so on the day of battle, not a sword or a spear could be found in the hand of any of the troops who were with Saul and Jonathan. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had weapons. How do you feel like that for your army? They have chariots. They have everything they need. Anybody got a sword? I do. I do. Anybody else? (laughs) Things look grim. The king who would fight the wars for Israel is staring down defeat. The pagan enemies are numerous, and the spiritual leadership of their nation is at odds with the king. The king who once had a changed heart, who once prophesied, was corrupted. And maybe you can't relate because you don't feel it yet, but I don't know about you. But I feel like at times that I'm surrounded by a culture of death. Our culture wants to murder unwanted babies before they come. They want to murder unwanted elderly people because they could be too taxing on those of us still living. Our world wants many to question their God-given sexuality. And for those who are susceptible to it, they do harm to their bodies in either trying to change their biology or harm their bodies in engaging unnatural sexuality. It's all leading to a culture of death. Our world champions individuality to the point of making people find out for themselves just what Jesus meant when he said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And that people pursue their own wants and their own desires, and when they've set their standards so low, namely on selfish things, they find out that like a dog chasing cars, it'll do them no good. You know that dogs have no use for cars? I've never seen one drive one. I've never... Okay, somewhere to pee. I take that back. But I often, people impassioned by whatever impassions them, upon obtaining it, they find out it was about the pursuit and the anticipation more than the actual acquiring it. It does a death to them in their hearts. It's a culture, it's a tsunami wave culture of death. And we seem to be Saul staring down an army of darkness thinking, an army who thinks it's okay to kill babies, kill old people, to argue with God about your sexuality. And in this culture where it seems like all things God are frowned upon, questioned, minimized, and diminished, there needs to be a break. There needs to be a subversion, an anti-force. Someone who doesn't comply with the culture but does what is right. That same day, perhaps the day where the Philistines took control of the pass of Mount Potatoes, Micmash, but the same day in the more general sense as we might use it, you know, back in my day, I traveled uphill both ways to school, and, and back in the day of this war, this battle where Saul was losing and he decided to take matters into his own hands concerning the sacrifice, we read that Saul's son, Jonathan Jonathan was mentioned in chapter 12. In passing, we were told of the relation, but it seems more purposeful here. It says, Saul's son Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. This is why we were told of the relation. Saul's son didn't tell his own father, the king. Why? 
Well, we might say that Jonathan, one of the two people in the entire army who has a weapon, doesn't want to relay to his dad that he's entertaining thoughts of what would amount to suicide. But the author of 1 Samuel, I believe, is about to relay to us other reasons. Saul was staying under the pomegranate tree in Migron. Some translations and translators are disagreed on the word Migron. It might be threshing floor. And I think the words are similar in Hebrew, Migron and threshing floor. I don't know, but, but it's important to note that on threshing floors and under trees were common places that kings would conduct their court during battle. So that's why it's thought that. They were on the outskirts of Gibeah, that's Saul's hometown. The troops with him, Saul, numbered about 600. Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod, was also there. He was the son of Ahitub, the brother of Ichabod, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest at Shiloh. And you're like, I'm so glad the author related all that to me. It clarifies everything. However, if you're reading the book in one sitting, it would help you. Because first and foremost, we should say this. We know why Samuel's not there. (laughs) He told Saul that he lost the kingdom. Secondly, the author here mentioned Eli's family, the priest of Eli. If you remember 400 years ago when we did our first series in 1 Samuel, Eli was a priest before Samuel. And God told Eli, and actually God told Samuel as well, that Eli's family, they're cut off from the priesthood. Their disobedience um, as priests were too much, and God was no longer with them. You can see that in 1 Samuel 2 and 3. And so the point is this, is that Saul has some rejected priests in his army on standby for godly advice. In Saul's mind, I bet the thinking is like, well, I at least need a holy man around to have at my beck and call. Samuel disowned me, I'll find me another holy man. However, God has spoken concerning who is the prophet at Samuel. And God has spoken about Saul's future, his reign will not endure. And not just any holy man will do here. So are you getting this? Think about this with me. The Bible is about Jesus. The kingdom is corrupt. The so-called holy leaders that Saul is trying to rely on is corrupt. But from the corrupt king of a corrupt kingdom is a righteous son. A son named Jonathan. But the troops did not know that Jonathan had left. So verse 3 ends for us. Again, the reasons might be Jonathan probably snuck out. He probably wouldn't have the go-ahead from anybody. That's a good idea. Go ahead. Because here's what he's up to. There were sharp columns of rock on both sides of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine garrison. One was named Bozes and the other Sinath. One stood in the north in the front of Michmash and the other to the south, south in the front of Geba. Bozes and Sena are Hebrew words which basically could mean slippery or swampy, and the second one means thorny. And the point of the author is this. They're in a tight spot. They're straddling around mountaintops. That's the actual pass of Michmash. And the mountains are Mount You'll Die and Mount One Step in Your Toast. And above is an army of Philistines, and it's just Jonathan with a sword and his armor bearer, right? The odds sound great. No wonder Saul's sitting on his rear end brooding. And it's at this point that Jonathan finds that it is a great time to say this in verse 6. 
He said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. It's an interesting phrase, often used derogatorily. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant of God's people. Now, I would hate to have been Abraham, because he was an old man when God first told him, the father of the first Jews, that you need to circumcise yourself. This is going to be a sign of the covenant, because it's a vivid sign on such a personal place. And so Jonathan is recalling that God has promised Israel that, that Israel are his people. It is Israel that God has revealed himself to. It is Israel to whom God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And it is Israel that Jesus will come from. But also, about these Philistines, these uncircumcised men, it's interesting that when Saul was first singled out by God to be king over his people, what did God say about him? When God told Samuel to anoint Saul, he said... At this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. This is Saul, who's going to come to to Samuel. Anoint him, ruler over my people Israel. He will save them from the Philistines. Because I have seen the affliction of my people, for their cry has come to me. It's in the very anointing of Saul was this promise of he being a deliverer from God's people, the Philistines. Now, I'm going to do a little in between reading, in between the line reading that you can take or leave. It could be that Jonathan knows this. Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan saw the very nation he lived in go from a time of judges to a monarchy. He had to have some insight as to why his dad was to be king. So, whether or not Jonathan knows the promise of God about his dad's kingship, we at least know that Jonathan is so gutsy about his plan of attack because of God, period. He said to his armor bearer, perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now, I just want to point out that the perhaps here is not a sign of doubt. As in, well, let's go ahead and let's just see if God is who he says he is. No, rather, it's a concession to say God's not required to save us, but it's entirely possible. It's not a question of possibility if God uh, desires to save us. He will save us, whether by many or by few. So we're supposed to note something here. What was Saul doing? I have a little army. They have a big army. I'm sweating beads. Where's Samuel, my good luck man? Give me the sacrifice. I'll do it. All get God's blessing, sweating beads. Meanwhile, here's Jonathan with a sword and his armor bearer on the hills of Slippery and Thorny, looking at the Philistines, struggling, shrugging. Eh, we could probably take him. God's got this. See, Saul's son here has more faith. That's what we're supposed to see. The son here trusts God. When God says, I've ordained Saul to deliver the people from the Philistines... The son here doesn't let numbers get to him. He lets God get to him. People with great faith are contagious. It's certainly contagious for the armor bearer. His armor bearer responded, do whatever is in your heart. Go ahead. I'm completely with you. 
Jonathan has the respect, the trust of his men. And you need to remind me, but yeah, that's only one man right now. <laughs> See, if, if Saul's kingdom wasn't being taken away from him, Dean reminded us in the study guide on his study on this passage that Jonathan is the rightful heir apparent to this throne. Jonathan seems like a man worth following. Here is a man that doesn't sweat beads and tries to manipulate God and ignores protocol and decides to do sacrifices himself, but he trusts God completely. Two of us and an army of them. If God wants us to win, we'll win. No doubt. That sort of faith is contagious. Do you have that sort of faith? Verse 8. All right, Jonathan replied, we'll cross over to the men and then let them see us. If they say, wait until we reach you, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed them over to us. That will be our sign. So if the garrison tells them to, to stay put, the garrison is too suspicious. They'll have time to be alert. Hey, there's two men up there. Get your, get your gear, guys. But if the garrison is cocky, come on up here. We'll take your two little rascals on a suicide mission. Give us your best shot. Jonathan says that's the sign that the Lord has handed them over to us. In fact, uh, the ESV would say uh, the Lord has given them to us. And the name Jonathan means the Lord has given or Yahweh has given deliverance, salvation, kind of like the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Now, a few things before we advance. We don't know all the ins and outs of how Jonathan decided this, right? If A happens, God's saying this. If B happens, God's saying that. We don't know how that's decided. If we know our Bibles, it might remind us of Gideon. This is what Silas read for us earlier. He started off by reading Gideon making this weird communication sign with God. If the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, this. If the ground is wet and the fleece is dry, that. The author in 1 Samuel, though, throughout the whole book, actually, I should say so far, has been making comparisons to the book of the Judges. Using key words, bringing out key points and plots to get people from to get people who are familiar with the books of the Judges to these characters. See, we've seen shades of Judges in Samuel and Saul, and now we see shades of the Judges in Jonathan. Judges, um, for those of you who are like thinking of people in robes with gavels, could probably be better called deliverers in our language. These aren't always people making judicial rulers, but they deliver Israel from um, enemies. And Jonathan is showing shadows of Gideon. So it's a foreshadow for us that he's going to be a deliverer. And it shows us this, that where Israel's fallen king is failing Israel, Israel is going to be saved by the son of that king. The Bible is about Jesus. Do any of you recall what Israel itself was supposed to be? Some of you Christians have been taught this. Israel was a unique, chosen nation, was always supposed to be, period. Not exactly. If you read Genesis 12, read every word of the first three verses. Genesis 12 is when Abraham, long before Jesus, long before Saul, long before Moses is called out, 
This is Father Abraham, father of the Jews. And what does God say to him? The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with any contempt. Now, if we stop right there, you would say, See, Kevin, the nation's going to be blessed. God's going to bless and curse those who would bless and curse Israel. But then the key of this establishing of Israel is found in what God is doing with Israel. And he ends in verse 3. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's Israel's people. That's Israel's purpose, I should say. To bless the peoples of the earth. Did Israel deliver on that? Did Israel... Bless the peoples of the earth. By the time of Jesus, Israel was a conquered nation, and whatever could pass for as leaders in Israel, namely the, the hierarchy, the, the rulers of the religion, we just read about it. They were greedy, corrupt, politicking, hypocrites. The peoples of the earth, whoever happened to believe in the Jewish God, would show up at the temple to get fleeced and robbed by Jewish authorities. It's why Jesus comes in one fateful day. Some of you, this is like my life verse. He throws over temple tables and he says, This was supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he was talking that gruffly. It's implied. I don't know. But all the peoples of the earth had not been blessed through Israel. But this son of Israel, this son of the corrupt Jewish leadership, blesses all the peoples of earth through him. He does so on a suicide mission. Okay. Just like Jonathan. Jonathan is going to make it out alive in his suicide mission, but Jesus will make it out alive too after he dies. But let's see how Jonathan fares. Let's see what happens in verses 11 through 17. We read in verse 11. They let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've been hiding. Now, in chapter 13, the, the Hebrews and the Israelites, these are two designations for the same race. Hebrews and Israelites. So there were Hebrews who had been mercenaries or traitors. They've gone to the Philistine side, the same reason that Saul was fearful. You remember the, the numbers that uh, Saul could do some math and he realizes things don't look good. Saul sweats beads. Israelites were hiding and so some Hebrews went all the way and they joined the other side until the Israelites win later on and we'll see the Hebrews return to, in verse 21. So while the Philistines might call all of them Hebrews, I think the author wants us to differentiate between Hebrew as generally speaking and then Israelite as faithful and remnant, righteous. So, look who's crawling out of their holes. It's kind of a funny, snide sarcasm, but it's also true. They literally went to go hide in their holes. Verse 12 would continue. The men of the garrison called to, to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come on up and we'll teach you a lesson, they said. Could have been a little bit of a taunt, as in, Come on up if you can, since they're on the edges of Mount Slippery and Thorny. Even so... This is the sign that Jonathan knew about in one of the two possibilities. So Jonathan says, follow me, he said to the armor bearer, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up, using his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. 
Jonathan cut them down, and his armor-bearer followed and finished them off. In that first assault, Jonathan and his armor-bearer struck down about 20 men in a half-acre field. Now, did you catch this? Jonathan and his armor-bearer climbed up. Just two words. Like, again, Mount Slippery and Thorny, they scaled a mountain, and then on top of that, they went Rambo BC on them. And it was two against 20, and I did the math for you, because I can do this kind of math. That's an average of 10 people per person. No wonder then we read in verse 15, terror spread through the Philistine camp and the open fields to all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook, and terror spread from God. So not only do we have two people who just scaled Mount I Thought You Would Die and took out a group of 20 people, once they saw what these guys were capable of, others are terrified, then an earthquake happens. Now just as a side note, what happens is when Jesus begins to single-handedly conquer the grave? An earthquake. We read that as he expired on the cross, an earthquake happened. The last time the Philistines fought the Israelites, I told you about this, the Philistines captured the ark. Do any of you remember what happened? The ark which the book of Exodus tells us is the very presence of God, literally, single-handedly delivered itself back to Israel. Once in Philistine hands, the Philistine placed the ark in the temple of its own God, just a little Philistine totem poles-type statue. Overnight, the statue falls over. Well, that's kind of weird. They go back in, they prop it back up. The second time it falls over, its heads and its arms come off, and the ark is still standing. Then... Rats infest each town wherever the ark is at. Then an ancient spread of the plague breaks out. That's in 1 Samuel 5. Long story short, before too long, Philistia is saying, Send the ark back. Just give it back to Israel, please. And here is the Philistines and Israel again on the battlefield, and they're facing two terminators, and the earth is shaking. They're terrified. There's a big panic. A big terrified. It's observable. Because we then read in verse 16, when Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked up, they saw the panicking troops scattering in every direction. So Saul said to the troops with them, call a roll and determine who left us. Saul must have quickly realized that the Philistine army was being attacked. They called the roll and saw that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. So what is Saul going to do now? Here's what's interesting. Verse 18. Saul told Ahijah, part of the rejected priestly line, bring the ark of God, for it was with the Israelites at that time. Now, the author in Saul kind kind of seems to suggest a nonchalant attitude about the ark. Saul is asking a rejected priest to bring the ark of God. Most people would approach the ark of God a little bit reverently. In fact, when the ark is returned to Israel... From the Philistines, in 1 Samuel 6, we find that some Israelites die because they mishandled the ark. The ark was captured in 1 Samuel 5 to begin with because it was treated like a good luck charm. Saul says to the rejected priest, in which God doesn't even likely talk to, bring me the ark. While Saul spoke to the priest, the panic in the Philistine camp increased in intensity. So Saul said to the priest, "Ah, stop what you're doing. Apparently, Saul was trying to converse with God. Is this a sign? Am I going to win here? What's the deal? But the increasing panic from the Philistines likely told him the answer. So it could have been obvious to Saul by this point that the Israelites will win. 
But I think we're also supposed to see again that Saul could care less about conversing with God. Last week, when everyone was scared, he performed a sacrifice prematurely and not authorized. Saul's not a priest. Now he was about to try to talk to God through another unauthorized priest. But once things look in his favor, oh, forget it. I don't need to talk to God. Saul's into his relationship with God for his own reasons, not God's reasons. Bring the ark. Bring God before me. I got a question for him. He's one of my advisors. That's the attitude. Stop what you're doing. We don't need to talk to God. I got this. Samuel had told Saul that Samuel does the sacrifice. Priests throughout much of Israel's history bring a word of the Lord to the leader. Saul's going to have a history of trying to talk to God when he wants to. And couldn't care less when God has a word for him. And we see the contrast again between Saul and his son. Saul doesn't care to talk to God too much, whereas son went Gideon style on his attack. I won't move until I know what God's will is. The son listens. You know what Jesus said about his life, utilizing the language of father and son? Jesus said to the Jews, Truly, I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. Whatever he sees the father doing, Jesus does. That's the kind of relationship that Jonathan showed in this one instant. Whatever you want me to do, God. What about the corrupt Jewish leadership over Jesus? Jesus, as you heard in Matthew 23 today, has a few choice words to say about him. But also in the book of John, we read to them, You are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature. I like how the NIV says, when the devil lies, he speaks his native language. Because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. Saul had a chance to repent, as Dean stressed last week. He's not doing that. He thinks because he still has his cracked crown on, he's got some sort of holy man nearby that God's just going to rubber stamp everything he wants to do. Saul didn't save Israel this day. God did. That's how our text finishes. Saul and all the troops were with him assembled and marched to the battle. And there the Philistines were fighting against each other in great confusion. There were the Hebrews from the area who had gone earlier into the camp to join the Philistines. But even they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelite men who had been hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they also joined Saul and Jonathan in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. So the Philistine army is going crazy before Saul's eyes. Finally, the king who was anointed to save Israel from the Philistines, finally after his son went in alone, almost on a suicide mission that turned out not to be suicidal, because his son has more faith than him, finally Saul decides, well, here's a good time to fight. <laughs> By this time, the Philistines are fighting against each other. Great confusion. Perhaps they suspected each other of being traitors or Israelites. Perhaps they were disoriented by the earthquakes. Perhaps they couldn't agree on a plan of attack. 
ranking on each other. Perhaps it's just flat-out supernatural dumbness stricken on them. I'm okay with that explanation as well. When Gideon and the Israelites are fighting the Midianites years prior, we read another similar thing happened. The Lord caused the men and the whole army to turn on each other with swords. Now, I think this is a pretty clever tactic of God's, right? Like, you don't have enough men on your side against to fight them? Just kill each other. That works. So, as I touched on earlier, the mercenary, traitorous Hebrews who had defected to the Philistines conveniently saw this as a great time to come back. Oh, we were just spying. We weren't really defecting. (laughs) And also there were the Israelites who didn't betray their men, but they ran away and fled and hid until it was convenient to come out of hiding. Uh, The point is this. The king wasn't doing anything. He was scared out of his mind. There were mercenary Israelites in it for their own skins. There were cowardly Israelites, and there was a huge, massive Philistine army. And it looked pretty grim. Now, maybe, I don't think I need to bring that up yet. Maybe it's not a terrified, ungodly king or a massive enemy army or some betrayers whom you thought were friends or cowards whom you thought were friends but are nowhere to be found. But maybe you still feel the weight. Maybe at times you still feel like that there is this whole World, this whole tsunami of corruption, evil, and culture just headed, and it's against all the right things, and it's opposing everything you think to be right, good, pure, whole, and true, and you wonder, who will save us? How is this going to turn around? All it took to turn the tide of war was the son of Saul, who maybe knew, my dad, I'm pretty sure, was appointed to be a king to deliver Israel from this sorry race of the Philistines, And if God's going to still be faithful on that bit, I'll stand in for that. And Jonathan, and at least one man who was wacky enough to trust him, both trusted God and the tide was turned. God promised to bless the world through one nation thousands of years ago, upwards of 2,000 years before Jesus. And 2,000 years after Abraham, there was no Israel. Just a broken, rotten, corrupt, no good shell of a nation, conquered underfoot by the greatest empire the world had ever known up to that point, Rome. And again, what was left of Israel, the Jewish establishment, was hypocritical at best. And the numbers were grim. The righteous remnant seemed little existence inside the nation. No one could spit in Rome's direction without being obliterated. Obliterated. How in the world was this nation supposed to be a blessing to the world? But one man went on a suicide mission. And though God even called Israel, quote, my firstborn son, God called Jesus my one and only son and his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. And Jesus became the realized Israel. And Jesus is the blessing for the nations. For indeed, he is our salvation. We are saved by the son. We are invited to his kingdom, which is a kingdom above every other kingdom, transcending and outlasting all of the world's kingdoms, whether it be the the ancient theocratic nation of Israel or the empire of Rome or the United States of America. For those who are in Christ are part of a kingdom ruled by the king of kings and lord of lords. And you say, 
Kevin, you talked about Jonathan. You've talked about Jesus. Is there anything in this message where I might identify and fit in with? If you haven't heard it yet, do you feel this weight? Do you ever see our nation or do you ever sit like Saul sat, wondering, brooding, and fearful? Do you ever wait for a word from the Lord, wondering what should you do? You have the word of the Lord here. You have the word of the Lord in Christ. And all it takes is a little bit of a wacky faith. A little bit of a prompt to say, I need to receive Christ. And I need to do what he tells me to do. Even if it means scaling unapproachable mountains or taking on crowds with nothing at my side. Because if the Lord calls me to do it, he can do it with much or little. Some of you, this is the day of salvation. You've been thinking about it. You have questions. You're afraid if he's going to call you to Africa if you say yes. And I'm just saying, I know it looks like there's an army of 20 to face on the other side. But all you need is a tiny little bit of faith with a whole lot of questions. God will take even that. He's not really picky. Others of you, you are saved, but you're still sitting in Saul's seat, wondering and brooding and knowing that God's called you to some task. Whether it be that God's called you to be a deliverer from the Philistines, I don't know, (laughs) but you're stagnant. Maybe God's called you to be the husband your wife deserves, the dad your children deserve, the wife your husband deserves, the mom your kids deserve. God's called you to be the witness to these neighbors or these friends are really waiting for you. God's called you to be more proactive in ministry. God's called you, and I expect the Holy Spirit to be already filling in the blank. But you've been Saul brooding in a chair from afar. You've been Saul not inclining your heart to the true words of God, but you're searching desperately for scriptures and preachers to say something that you can twist to feel justified in flat-out disobedience. No. Repent. Today is the day. Let's pray. Father, if we're honest, maybe it's because you do it to test our faith, but sometimes it feels like you called us to a kingdom that's on the losing side. You called us to a kingdom that nobody likes. You've called us to a kingdom and you've said to your disciples, they hated and persecute me, they're going to do the same to you likewise. But if we think about it and if we really understand the scriptures and if we really understand what you're saying, we find that everything you say is true. Everything you say is right. The world that you want to, to inaugurate, the kingdom that you want the, the world to be a part of, is the only one that makes complete sense and is totally fair. And it's full of righteousness and peace and justice. But Father, when many sinners like us have been so accustomed to our sins for so long, we grow comfortable with the evil and sins that we're a part of. Father, I pray that today would be a day of salvation, that for those who have been struggling with this question would find the answer today. And they would find that, like many of us, it's an answer that promotes a lot more questions, but it's an answer that we know to be true and know to be right. That, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I do need a Savior. His name is Jesus. He did die for my sins. He rose from the grave, showing that he is God, and he conquered my sins. And while I am not acceptable before God because of my own sins, I'm acceptable before God through Jesus' righteousness. And so I cling to Jesus today. Father, for those of us who have been stagnant like Saul, brooding, thinking, fearful, 
the numbers look too big on their side. I don't have a lot on my side. Father, would this be a day where we would mimic Jonathan and we would mimic Jesus and we would take faith and do what we know that we need to do, trusting that you will accomplish it through us. We don't need to accomplish it. We just need to be available for you to be working through us. Father, however this message hits us today, all I pray is that all of us would respond obediently as you would have us to do so. And for those of us who are afraid that, well, I've tried to respond before and I've never been successful, would we surrender today and say, all right, Jesus, can you do this for me? Holy Spirit, could you enter into me and accomplish what it is you're calling me to do? Father, I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.